let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. The words will be up on the screen as well, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. But let's read it to start with. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. And the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. And from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work in one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. Okay, here we have uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. Over the preceding weeks, um, when I've been preaching, we've been looking at this book. We saw right at the outset that this, for for the people of God, was a time of new beginning. 
God's city, the city of Jerusalem, the joy of the whole earth, had lain in, uh, in rubble. It was a desolate, uh, destroyed city where no one could safely live. And it had been like that for decades, a century or more, uh, since the Babylonians came and took the people into exile and burned down the walls and destroyed them, turning it into, into rubble. That's been the situation for so long. But now we've seen in these early chapters how God has been doing a new thing. And God has been getting hold of, first of all, just one guy, Nehemiah, living hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. He gets hold of Nehemiah and uh, he starts to bring to him a vision and a mission and a project to return with God's help to return to the city of Jerusalem and with God's favor upon him, resources made available to him and permission given to him by the emperor of the whole empire. Um, he is to start the work of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And, uh, and so he's gathered the people. The people have risen in faith. They've heard that vision that God has been uh, kind of giving to Nehemiah. They've rallied to him. There's been this great response of faith and unity. And the people of God, who've been living with rubble for decades, have realized, no, now is the time. Now is a time of new beginning. We're going to put our hands to this. We're going to put our shoulder to the work. And together, a united, committed, faith-filled people, we are going to rebuild this city. And so we've been looking at that. Uh, hopefully being encouraged by it as well. Uh, for us, the project is not so much rebuilding physically a city or a structure, but it's about seeing what God wants to build in his church. People being built together, becoming a community that is a secure and safe place for people to encounter God, have a new identity, and uh, and, and kind of enjoy being his people, becoming um, a believer in God, a believer in Jesus. So we've been, we've been looking at that. Last time out, we saw how the people in chapter 3 were demonstrating really a profound unity. They were very much uh, together of one heart, of one mind, and uh, yeah, fundamentally united in what was happening. Now we hit chapter 4. Chapter 4 is when that unity gets tested, the progress gets tested because opposition has reared its ugly head. That's what we're going to look at today, the opposition to the work of God and how we are to understand it and overcome it. What we see in this chapter is opposition to what God wants to do comes in a variety of forms. It comes at different times. It can come from surprising sources. It doesn't necessarily come from the places or from the people that might be expected. And fundamentally what it shows us is that opposition can't be ignored. We need to be alert to it. We need to learn to overcome it. And I think what we see here is also we need to learn to expect it. That to some degree or another, opposition to the work of God amongst any people who claim Jesus as their king, um, will come. It will happen. And it will come in particular when there is a new beginning, when God is doing something new, when God is doing something fresh. So 
in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible, God is doing something fresh. He's creating the world, then he's creating the human race to be in perfect, open relationship with him. And then what happens in chapter 3 is we discover there's opposition. The serpent comes into the garden. Did God really say he wants to ruin what God has been doing? That's there. We see it here in uh, the book of Nehemiah, um, which we'll look at in a bit more detail, obviously, particularly taking note of these guys, Sambalat and Tobiah. A new thing is happening and opposition emerges to it. When God does something new, when God does something fresh, when God gets a hold of people, unites them uh, to a noble project, there will be opposition. Um, it won't, not everyone will think, oh, this is a wonderful thing, this is a glorious idea. You know, no, for some, um, opposition comes. We see that in the New Testament as well. We see it in the life of Jesus when he begins his ministry. Well, in fact, when he was born, there was opposition. King Herod tried to have him killed when he was but an infant. And then when he newly starts his ministry, um, kind of declaring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near, all of a sudden there is opposition. There are people violently and vehemently opposing who he is and what he says and what he's come to do. Then we see in the book of Acts, God does a new thing. The church emerges. What do we see happening? We see Peter and John dragged before um, religious authorities and being persecuted, being threatened. So there's always a measure of opposition when God does something new. Therefore, take heart. Huh? Yeah, go on. Be encouraged. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? But why don't you turn with me to the book of Romans briefly, Romans and chapter 15. You think, well, that, that doesn't sound particularly encouraging, but let's look at Romans 15 and verse 4. It says there, Paul writes, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Actually, that's why Nehemiah chapter 4 is written, that we might have hope. How encouraging would it be for us here living our life together as part of this church? If we read Nehemiah chapter 4 and it said, the wall went up and it was easy, there were no problems, no challenges, no opposition, it was done and dusted. Nothing has ever been simpler, more straightforward, because the anointing of God was upon us. The favor of God was on us. It was easy. We hardly have to lift a finger, actually. It was more or less effortless. And all the nations and all the people and everybody on the planet said, this is a wonderful thing. And uh, we want to commend you for your hard work for the effort that you've put in and they all gather around and they say yes thank you thank you it was easy actually but thank you nevertheless if Nehemiah chapter 4 said that how encouraged would we actually be because presumably we can identify ourselves individually or as a church with times where things aren't simple, they aren't straightforward, they aren't easy. And as we see in this chapter, that's what was 
actually happening. Here are, here are people who were needing to endure, needing to find courage. They were needing to persevere in the face of opposition, in the midst of the going getting tough, in the face of discouragement and challenge. And surely, from time to time, we can identify with that, and that's where we might find ourselves. We might find ourselves there personally, and certainly this chapter can help us personally, individually. Sometimes it can happen like this. Someone makes a fresh, totally new decision to believe in Jesus, to receive the forgiveness that only comes from him, and to do what we've just been singing about in that song about he, he, he loved us and our response is uh, loving him, giving our lives to him in return, in response. So that, that fresh decision has been reached. Someone makes that call. They, they, they respond to God. And for initially, at least, there's this, this wonderful kind of receiving new life on the inside. And God's Holy Spirit right in us, kind of encouraging us. We, we know something tangible really of the of the presence of God and the truth of God and words from the scripture come alive to us we realize this really is true the Lord Jesus really is alive he really did rise from the dead he really is ruling and reigning now he really is at work in my life this is wonderful and that's the experience that's the reality well again it's not unlike unlikely unusual that following a new beginning, even a new birth, then comes opposition. Then comes people maybe sneering or saying things that are kind of dismissive of your newfound faith. Or maybe it's just internal and there are thoughts in there. Doubts that can creep in, uncertainty that can come. Or accusations, accusing thoughts. You're, you're making this up really, aren't you? And these things can start to kind of come in and what happens is kind of, ah, a blanket of discouragement can come on a new believer. So it can apply personally, but and hopefully personally, this passage will help all of us. Its main thrust, I believe, is, is corporate. This is about a whole people. This is about a group of people who themselves are working diligently, They're committed and they're united, they're in faith, but actually as a community, there's maybe a bit of a blanket of discouragement that's coming upon them. And so that can be the case for a church encountering uh, new beginnings when opposition comes or when things aren't straightforward. And again, as a whole church, a lesson needs to be learned in how do we as a people together overcome the opposition that subtly, perhaps, or perhaps blatantly, can come our way from time to time. In this chapter, there are, as I would see it anyway, uh, there are three rounds. Um, the, the bell rings and round one begins. What does, the, what does opposition involve to start with in chapter four of Nehemiah? We'll look at these three and we'll try and draw some helpful lessons from it. The first round of opposition is what I'd call taunting. 
This is what they were saying. When Sambalat heard what we were, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and we was greatly incensed. That's where this opposition is coming from. A deep-seated anger towards the work of God. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their walls? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? And so on. This is taunting. These are insults. This is ridicule. This is, this is mocking. And we might say, yeah, sticks and stones, mate, but names will never hurt me. But actually, they can. And they do. And this is vicious stuff, really. You feeble Jews. Uh, Tobiah, kind of adds to it with his own slant of mockery. Uh, What they are rebuilding, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. The whole purpose of having a city wall in the ancient world is that you had something so thick, so solid, that if anyone was going to break down that wall, they would need to put up massive and substantial siege works and bombard that city for days and days and days to eventually establish a small breach in the wall that they can then expose to invade and overcome that city. It's supposed to be hard work to break into a city and demolish the walls. So Tobiah is saying, if even a fox kind of trotted across the top of your wall, it would crumble down. It's not actually true, obviously. Um, Excavations uh, in previous decades recently have revealed that these walls that they were rebuilding would have been about nine feet thick. But that's the kind of vicious taunts that are coming their way. Let's look then at how they respond. How do they overcome Uh, these taunts, these insults that are coming their way, with no introduction, with no word of explanation, we find out straight away in verses 4 and 5, because we hear what they were praying. This is a a prayer, maybe Nehemiah led them in this prayer, but it's clear, I think, that they're all praying it. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. And it goes on, turn their insults back on their own heads, give them over as plunder in the land of captivity, and so on. In no uncertain terms, how do they respond? Straight away, without any hesitation, we've seen it before, we've seen it in how Nehemiah conducts himself, straight away it's turning to God. Straight away it's bringing this whole situation before him. And that is such a commendable response in the face of hardship and opposition what do we what do we do primarily what's our first port of call it's seeking the lord he's the god of heaven he's the one who's granted favor he's the one who's going to show us success he's the one who's been leading us so far he's the one who's got a plan for this city he's the one who actually owns and has designed the vision for this place. He's the one who's got a future for his people. We're going to turn to him. We're going to turn to God. Is that, is that our response? Do we sometimes, we can prematurely think we've got to, we've got to turn to ourselves. 
you feeble Jews. And we might just think, oh yeah, I feel a bit feeble. But, but no, uh, I, I can remember some of the impressive things I have done in the past. I promise I'm not lying. Um, I, I've, I've, I've done this and I've, I've prayed for them. And I, I, I've, I've led this. Sometimes I've led discussion in core group. And I even shared Jesus um, uh, and my faith with my schoolmates. Or And we can kind of go through almost our own tick list of, no, no I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. No, we're not going to fight the battle, we're not going to overcome it in that way. It gets overcome by turning to God and saying, God, would you do, would you intervene, would you um, be at work? But I wonder, how do you respond to that prayer? The prayer that Nehemiah and his and the people together pray, uh, pray. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. I mean, that is a brutally honest prayer, is it not? Uh, this is this is kind of no holds barred. This is serious stuff. But would we, have we ever found ourselves praying in the same way? Should we pray in the same way when we face opposition? Blot, don't blot out their sins. Keep their guilt before you, O God. Turn their insults back onto their own heads. Lead them into captivity, your Lord. You know, is that, is that, should, be that, should that be the content of our prayers? I would suggest not, though I think we learn a lot from that prayer. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Fight the good fight of faith. The faith involves a fight. But Ephesians chapter 6 would remind us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against people. It's against the rulers and the principalities, the authorities of spiritually dark forces who are set against uh, God's work and God's people. So we can look to Jesus, can't we? Jesus uh, taught, actually, when you're persecuted, when you're opposed, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. That was, in fact, is what Jesus taught. It's what Jesus did. That's what he modeled uh, in allowing himself to be crucified, in allowing himself to be mocked and insulted and beaten and led like a lamb to the slaughter. He wasn't kind of always arguing back against Pilate and those who would have him executed. He knew that God had plans and purposes even in his death because he would be resurrected and it's by that that we are forgiven because of what his blood has achieved. So Nehemiah doesn't at this point have the benefit of seeing that a Messiah would come and a Messiah would die and a Messiah would be raised to life again and he would show us how to love our enemies. But what we see here is, I think, something we can and should follow something of the essence of this prayer. In other words, it is passionate. It's honest. Indignation is involved. 
This is not the way things should be. Oh God, your work on this planet is being opposed. We're not praying against people, but we're praying for what you want to do. Therefore, right now, in our day, in this time, Lord, grant success to the Alpha Course, to a guest event, to our evangelistic endeavours to preach the gospel, share the gospel uh, with friends and family. Um, so there's passion involved. And for Jesus, passion was involved. Even anger was stirred. It's interesting. Think about it. Who was Jesus angered by? There'd be a few candidates, wouldn't there? Was he angered by the Roman authorities? From the Gospels, it would not appear so. He's given plenty of opportunities um, to, uh, to mock or ridicule or speak against the Roman authorities. But when he's posed the tricky question, do we give to God or we do, do we give to Caesar? He said, you know, show me a denarius. Whose head's on the coin? Oh, it's Caesar's. Well, you give to God what's God's and you give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He's not going to be drawn into that battle. He's not ranting against the outsiders, in other words. He's not ranting and raving. He's not angered. He's not opposed to the people of other nations around Jerusalem who may be hostile or maybe not be. And that's actually a centurion, a Roman centurion, who says, I've never seen as great faith as this in all of Israel. So he's not angered by people who are outside the faith. He's actually angered by the religious authorities who would appear to be within it. Um, So, for example, we can look at Matthew I think it's Matthew, it might be Mark, but let's go to Matthew first. Matthew chapter 3. And we see here his his response. Let's turn to Mark. How about we turn to Mark? Mark chapter (laughs) 3. We see a response of anger provoked in Jesus. So beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Mark... Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus comes along. He's uh, God is doing a new thing. He's 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 sharing the good news He's demonstrating it too with healing. He comes to a man with a shriveled hand, but because it's on the Sabbath, because it's on the holy day, the Pharisees and the religious authorities say, no, you you can't do that now. That would count as work. You can't do work on the Sabbath. So even though you're doing something good, it's wrong and you shouldn't. Jesus sees that horrible religious attitude and he is angered by it he doesn't want that 
to kind of hold sway. He wants to set people free. He wants to do people good. He wants anyone and everyone to come to him to receive the life that he has. But what do we find? It's the religious authorities. It's those who represent religion. So, no, we, we don't do that. We don't do it that way. People, people can't just come to God like that. They've, they've got to purify themselves. They've got to sort themselves out. got to clean themselves up. Then, maybe then, you can heal the guy's hand. But not now, and certainly not on the Sabbath. It's an attitude of religion. It's hypocrisy. It's ugly. Now, come back to Nehemiah chapter 4. What's that got to do with it? Well, we come across these guys, Sambalat and Tobiah. And on the face of it, we can think, they are outsiders. They are people from other nations who are understandably opposed to the work of God. Here we get Nehemiah praying, God, go deal with the heathen. Taking a closer look, is that what's really happening? The name Tobiah is a Jewish name. It derives from God's name. God's name is involved. Praise be to Yahweh, or something similar. I didn't put it in my notes, so I've forgotten the details. Um, but in the name, it's, as reference to God, it's a Hebrew name. Turn back with me a couple of pages into Ezra, and we get a little bit of a clue as to who this guy might be. Um, we find out in Ezra 2, uh, there's a big list of exiles who are returning. The people of God, the Jewish people, returning to, to Jerusalem. Some of them could prove that they're Jewish. Some of them could prove their ancestry. Some of them couldn't. And Tobiah is one of those guys, it would appear. Because in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 59, we're, just, we're told there, the following came up from the, a variety of towns, which I haven't practiced this time. Um, and they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda. So Tobiah is there. He's one of the guys, one of the families, who actually can't show that he does belong to God. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, he rears his head again. And uh, in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 4, we're told this. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store uh, the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and so on. In other words, he's not a rank outsider. He would appear to be a figure of some influence and authority and with a religious background. But he doesn't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. It's kind of like a love-hate relationship, uh, it would appear like. This shouldn't be happening. So he's pouring scorn on the people of God, rebuilding the city, whilst a while ago he was claiming to be one of them. It's not as clear-cut as we might think. So it's not... Yeah, let's go and pray against all the heathens. Here's a situation where it's actually someone who appears to be representing religion, bringing the opposition. That's why I say opposition can come from unusual sources. It's not always typical. It's not always what we might expect. It's not always the big bad media 
Um, it's not always Richard Dawkins or whatever. Sometimes it's religious people. Sometimes it's people claiming to represent God and how things should be done. But they end up opposing the things of God. What's the outcome of round one? Well, good news. In verse six, we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. Maybe the taunting, maybe the insults worked at kind of gathering support amongst other people, but it doesn't actually affect the people of God. Um, They're able to throw it off, they pray, and their unity is maintained. So we find that the whole wall is rebuilt to half its height. It's not that some bits of the wall do well and other places people get discouraged. It's no, there's a, there's a sense of unity. The whole thing is rising at the same time. The people are together. The people are not thrown off course. The people overcome the taunts. Ding, ding. Round two. Round two shows us that opposition doesn't always take one form. And this anger that has been provoked in Sambalat, Tobiah, and their various associates, first of all demonstrates itself in taunting and insults. When that doesn't work, they try something else, and their opposition, their hostility, intensifies. It gets worse. We see this between verses 7 and 15. It's no longer just about taunts. It's no longer just about insults from a distance. This is now about threats. Threats to kill, threats to fight, threats to come and stir up trouble, to go where they are and try and interrupt, cause mayhem. It's getting physical, in other words. And what we see is, in this situation, actually, this starts to get to the people. The discouragement um, comes. And uh, perhaps it comes at an opportune time, in a sense, because they've built the wall to half its height. They've done it with all their might. They've done it with all their hearts. They've been diligent. They've been conscient. They're hardworking people. They're committed. They've got faith. They're honoring God, and they're doing brilliantly. But actually, they're getting a bit tired. They're getting exhausted. Their own personal resources of energy and zeal and enthusiasm are understandably on the, on, on the wane at this point in time. In other words, it's not surprising that they should have to deal with discouragement. Here it comes, verse 10. The people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. It wasn't plain sailing. It wasn't always easy. There was a huge amount of rubble. As their energy fails, they look again at this rubble. And maybe they're just thinking now, I'm not sure we've got it in us. We've given it a good go. But can we really see this through? Is this just too hard? Their, their energy is giving out. And they've done so well, but now they're feeling discouraged. Enemies throw in their further threats. Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Okay, picture yourself working on the walls of Jerusalem. You are now exhausted. 
the wall has reached half its height. You've done brilliantly. Um, you've worked hard. You've worked with your might and you've done great. But it's only half its height. The job's not yet done. This wall can still be scaled relatively easy. And now, without a wall to protect you, you hear that there are others around who are coming and they are coming to fight, they are coming to oppose you, they are coming to kill you. It's understandable they felt some discouragement. It's understandable that they looked at themselves, they looked at the rubble, they looked and they heard these threats, and they thought, how are we going to get through this? Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, Ten times over. Oh, thank you so much for sharing this ten times over. Um, for reiterating and driving the point home, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. In other words, the people of God who are living a bit further out of town, actually we're feeling a bit vulnerable too. Um, so wherever, you, whatever you do, just bear in mind that we're, we're being threatened. They're hostile to us as well. Oh, crumbs. Well, if we keep building the wall... Actually, we're going to land them in it over there. If we do what God has said, other people are going to encounter hard times. Big, massive discouragement comes. What's the response going to be this time? Clearly, also what we saw last time, they're going to, be, they're going to pray. But this is a time for deliberate action. Nehemiah is a practical guy. And he's not rushed. He says, after I looked things over. In other words, he, he does another survey. He does another sweep of the city. Okay, what's the approach going to be this time? Well, he stations some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them with families with their swords, spears, and bows. What does he do? He equips them and he says, stand there. Actually, you'll see them coming because the wall is not yet built. But actually, also, they'll see you. And they'll see that you're ready to defend. They'll see that you've got some weapons. They'll see that you're armed up. They'll see that you are prepared. And maybe, actually, that will dissuade them. Uh, So he sets about that kind of deliberate course of action. But what does he also do? He also speaks to the people. And again, what does he say to them? He doesn't just say, come on, everyone. I know it's hard right now. I know your strength is failing, but if you can just get through this next bit, if you can just rally yourselves, if you can just kind of um, push through, just keep going. In other words, he doesn't just come to them and exhort them with like a pep talk. Well, maybe you can do that once or twice, but if you're really exhausted, you can't. Um, That kind of exhortation can then just come as pressure. Come on, it's, it's up to you. It's up to you. All this rests. The plans of God rest on your shoulders. So you can't take a break. You can't refresh yourself. You've, you've just got to keep plowing on. Nehemiah could have gone down that line. Praise God that he didn't. Instead, what he did is, again, he directed their attention to God. Verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Again, what, how is it that we overcome personally and together, corporately as a church, how is it that we overcome discouragement? Overcoming taunts and insults. Maybe that was the easier part. But how do we, dis- how do we overcome 
when discouragement is profound and when energy has ebbed away and we've been giving ourselves to a certain project or a certain uh, area of the life of the church or we've been believing, in, we've been standing in faith, we've been consistent, we've been, we've been diligent, we've been praying, but then this blanket kind of comes and descends. Maybe not just on me, but maybe on others too. What's our response? Remember the Lord. We're not turning to ourselves, claiming to be strong in ourselves. No, I, I, here's my resume. Here, here's what I've done. Here's what I can achieve. I'm not feeble. I promise you, I'm not. I'm really quite strong in the Lord, as you can well see. Um, <laughs> no, we're not kind of turning to ourselves. We're turning to God. If I have an accusing thought that tells me, Dan, you're just feeble. Who, who do you think you are? You can't do this. Who, you, you can't sustain this. Well, what do I do? What, what should I do? No, you don't understand. I've, I've preached before. I've been leading the church for a little while. I'll be alright. I've got it in me. And maybe when God comes to you, sorry, not when God comes to you, when, when those kind of accusing thoughts, when discouragement comes to you, we can be tempted to think, oh, I've, I've got it in me. I've, I've got to find it in me to, to lead my group. I've got to find it in me to, to witness. I've got to find it in me to be hospitable. I've, I've got to find it in me. And actually, maybe that works for a little while. But it's not actually going to work. What do we need to do? We need to remember the Lord. It's not kind of the, the answer to discouragement is not outright denial. I'm fine. I'll be okay. I'm sorted. I've been through more challenging situations than this. And I've learned how to strut my stuff. So I'll be okay. It's, no. We might as well say, yes, I'm weak. Yes, I'm feeble. But this is not primarily about me this is not primarily about what i can do this is primarily about the god of heaven and this is primarily about what he has already done and what he will do i think that's why i think that's kind of on on paul's mind as he writes to one of his kind of sons in the lord when he writes to to timothy uh, we've seen already that he, he, he writes to Timothy and says, you know, fight the good fight of faith. He's perhaps aware that with Paul facing his own departure, Paul, the great apostle in prison, with other people who have appeared to be part of the community of faith, who've deserted them and opposed them, um, when there's loads of challenges to face in the life of the church, Paul is aware that he needs to write to Timothy for his encouragement. And so what does he write in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse something else? Um, Verse 8. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they too may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Come on Timothy. Don't be despondent. Don't get discouraged 
even though there is opposition. You don't have to deny the fact. You don't have to pretend otherwise. You don't have to whistle to yourself in the dark. No, face up to the facts. Yet, Philegius and Hermogenes, whoever they are, in chapter 1, verse 15, they've deserted Paul. Paul's in prison and stuff is tough. We might as well face it. Then what do we do? Remember. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And again, those words we've already seen. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ, who was brought to a point that looked like absolute abject weakness and failure. He was crucified on the cross. Remember the Lord Jesus. Remember why he went there, as we've been singing earlier on. Remember his love. Remember what he achieved there. Remember his forgiveness. Remember how that in Christ um, we're accepted if we've received him. If we've believed in him, we come into his family. We're a part of his family and that doesn't change. His love written over our lives is absolutely indelible. And his gospel, his salvation is never thwarted. Remember that he died. Remember that he loved you so much that he was prepared to go through that in order to save you. Now remember this. He was resurrected. He was raised. Three days later, he, the power of Almighty God reached into a tomb and commanded a body to be alive. And so he came out. And so he is now living. And he is now ruling. He is now the God of heaven. Just as much, even more so perhaps, as in the book of Nehemiah. The God of heaven will grant us success. Who is doing a great work? The God of heaven is doing a great thing. Who is in control of this whole mission? The God of heaven is in control. Who is going to fight for us? The God of heaven is going to fight for us. Who is this God of heaven? Remember that he is great and awesome. Our greatest problem when we are discouraged is that we have forgotten that the Lord is great and awesome. And therefore, we need to remember. Therefore, actually, we need to be in community so that we help remind one another. That's what's going on here. What's the outcome of round two? The outcome of round two, because of the steps that Nehemiah took, and also because of what he said to the people, and that people heard it and received it, the plot was thwarted. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plots and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Marvelous. Round two has been dealt with. And, uh, and surely now, surely now they can go back to how things were. They can put the swords away, put the spears away, forget kind of standing on guard. Let's just give ourselves to uh, building the wall. Let's go back. Maybe let's actually, we can just relax a little bit now. The, the problem is over. The opposition has been dealt with. God's kingdom will now advance without any hindrance, without any challenge, without any opposition, because we dealt with it. Isn't that right? Isn't that, is that what we learn in our own lives? 
that once you've kind of faced discouragement and you've faced disappointment and you've faced ridicule and you've come through a couple of challenges, that's it for the rest of your Christian life. You'll never face that again. You can just wear the badge. I'm a winner. (laughs) Clearly, that's not quite the end of the story. And indeed, it's not quite the end of chapter 4. They've dealt with these... uh, these threats, they've dealt with these taunts, but they're not getting lulled into a slightly foolhardy sense of security. It's now over. It's now dealt with. We have encountered success. That will kind of characterize everything from this point onwards. What we see instead is that this people stayed prepared. They stayed ready. Round three shows us this. It's not over. So from that day on, in verse 16, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers post themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. We'll look at the trumpet in a minute. But it's not over. You've got this group of people. They are united. They're actually doing different things. Some are standing guard. Some are carrying stuff, materials. And some are taking those materials and actually kind of physically building the wall, putting them in place. So there's different roles. There's a variety of of kind of activities going on. But what we see is every person is armed. Every person is equipped. Um, there are guards. Obviously, they're going to have stuff. The people carrying materials. I know they've got the materials in one hand and they've got a weapon in the other. That's what they're doing. Think, well, surely it would be more efficient to put the weapon down and carry more stuff. Well, no. Everyone needs to be armed. The builders need both their arms to physically pick the stuff up and put it into place. So they don't hold a weapon but the text tells us very clearly they had their sword at their side everybody is prepared everybody is ready everybody is aware it's not over god will grant us success but there'll be other challenges maybe other battles we need to stay in a condition of of readiness that is the same for us and actually one of the most vulnerable times to succumbing to discouragement or accusing thoughts or temptations to sin or whatever is immediately following a victory, immediately following success, immediately following the moment where we can say, yeah, yeah, watch them run because we stood our ground. Oh, yes, we're the strong ones. Right, back to the work. And whoops, just tumble tumble over, stumble into oh discouragement or temptation or whatever it might be. Therefore, City Church, let us stay armed. Now, what does that mean for us? Obviously, what I said earlier on, it's not a battle against flesh and blood. I have no knife on me. Uh, I'm not expecting any of that kind of hostility, actually, today. Um, But what I am expecting, and what I am aware that can come into my own life and my own head, are accusing thoughts are discouragements, or maybe things in life that don't pan out in precisely the way that I was hoping. And 
Oh, do you know what? Oh, no. What, do I, what are we going to do now? I know. Let's go downhill. Um, there are those moments, aren't they? And they can come, like I say, in the moments when we've just, maybe, if we're honest, ever so slightly impressed ourselves with how well we have dealt with the challenges that have come our way. And then something else, a different approach the enemy can utilize, a different tactic to kind of get underneath the radar. And sometimes it's just like that, accusing thought, accusing thought, accusing thought. He's not looking to always land the knockout blow. He's just looking to do that. Just take a couple of knocks. And we've got to kind of deal with those jabs because he's waiting for an opportune time to kind of absolutely land a blow which is more damaging. Therefore, we've got to keep on guard. We don't, we don't want to kind of drop our guard. We don't want to just pretend it's easy. Nothing is going to um, thwart the plans of God today. Now, what we need to do is take what for us is the sword. And the sword is the word of God. And the sword is what helps us so that in any and every moment, whether it is because somebody has actually said something, whether it is because someone has literally tried to whack us for being a Christian, I don't know, whether it's, because, whether it's the fact that actually in absolute reality, life in work, in community, in neighborhood, in kind of wider family or friendship groups is tough because you have made a stand by just simply sharing your faith or being honest with what you do on a Sunday or, 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 or what Jesus means to you, whatever it is. In those moments, our response is not get the knife out and jab the person. Our response has got to be in here. Remember the Lord. Am I feeble? Probably is Jesus? No. Is the God of heaven? No. Has what he has done for me been thwarted by my own sin, my own mistake, or the opposition that's come my way from other people? No, actually. Therefore, in more than just a kind of superficial way, I need this. I need this to help me remember what is true, and what is true of God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. There's a sense of, there's still action on our part. There's still a sense of actually, yes, I am still going to build, because discouragements can just mean we step back, we step away, we give up, we leave it to somebody else. Remembering the Lord enables us to keep fighting the good fight of faith. We need to be refreshed. If it's, if we kind of think of the Christian life as basically, um, peaceful, we're in a time of peace, then things like gathering together with our midweek core group or coming on a Sunday can just b- become the equivalent of just doing the done thing. Take it or leave it really. Um, we're in, it's a time of peace anyway. So let's just relax. There's something on the box or whatever. If we're aware we are in a battle and there is an enemy who's trying to undermine the work and the purposes of God, not only in my life, but in the life of this community, I need to seize strategic opportunities to gather together with other believers. Be that here. Be that when we pray. Be that in the Discover course that starts this week. Be that in a small group. Because do you know what? I must make sure... 
that I'm not getting isolated. Do you remember we looked at that before? The danger of isolation. The danger, perhaps in this chapter, of just thinking battle's over. It's, we've faced it and we've won through. From here on in, it's easy, so put on your slippers. Now, you are allowed to take your slippers to your small group if you so desire. Um, it might look a little bit weird on a Sunday, but anyway. Do what you like with your slippers. But don't find spiritual slippers. And, and just imagine that life is just relaxing, easy, peaceful. No, because God is about a great thing, we have an enemy who wants to oppose it. Therefore, we will encounter opposition at different times in different ways. Therefore, stay ready, stay equipped, encourage yourself in God, remember Jesus Christ, and take an opportunity to encourage someone else. You don't have to wait to find out they're discouraged, whether they're discouraged or not. Remind one another of Jesus Christ, who died and who rose to life again. Opposition is inevitable. Let's be those who are ourselves looking to overcome that. Let's remember those verses that we began by looking at from Romans 15. These, these passages here aren't written so that we kind of feel downbeat. Oh, it's bound to get tough at some point. Rather, this story, uh, this account of what happened in the book of Nehemiah is there uh, to remind us that we need to persevere. It does actually encourage us. They had to win through some trials and God was with them and they did succeed. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Be encouraged by the scriptures. Let us allow God now as we worship to rekindle and fan into flame the hope that we have in an almighty God who has said, I'm with you and I'm never going to leave you. Okay? Amen. Let's pray.